I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, from viral videos, comic books, poetry, and Broadway shows, cats have crept into our hearts and our imaginations. They're beautiful, smart, but also a little bit quirky. Many people, including me, really like the feeling that with a cat, you've earned their affection. Whereas some people might say that dogs are just hardwired to be friendly and they'll be friendly to anyone. With a cat, you feel like, wow, I've made it. This cat has given me his seal of approval. And long before grumpy cat memes, cats were worshipped by ancient Egyptians. The cats became revered animals in Egypt, so much so that, uh, that people would shave their eyebrows for a month if a cat died, and killing a cat was potentially punishable by death. From stories of domestication to psychological traits to purrs and meows, we dive into the secret lives of cats past and present. That's coming up on Life Examined. Recently on this show, we have admittedly taken on some really serious subjects, from dementia to divorce to family estrangement. So in the spirit of summer, we've decided to take a week and lighten it up a bit. That means we're heading into the animal kingdom to discuss some of our favorite furry creatures, cats. But let me be honest, after doing a show on dogs, I got some blowback from listeners. If you're going to do a show on dogs, they said, then you have to do a show on cats. One of those insistent opinions actually came from a friend and longtime KCRW employee, Brandon Devine, who had this rather cheeky message for me. My dearest Jonathan, it's your old pal, Brandon, longtime caller, first time listener. It's come to my attention that you've recently devoted an episode of your award-winning podcast and hit radio show, Life Examined, to the innocuous topic of dogs. A puff piece, or shall I say, pup piece, Surely in an attempt to boost your clicks and listens. And for that, I have a bone to pick. For the sake of being fur and balanced, I've elected to make an appeal for their domesticated superior. Cats, who happen to be experts on balance, by the way. Now don't get me wrong, I grew up with dogs. They're wonderful. I love dogs. But that's like saying I love ice cream. Everyone loves ice cream. But to love and truly appreciate a cat is far more challenging yet rewarding, for it is a bond that is earned, unlike the indiscriminate affection of dogs. From Cleopatra to Karl Lagerfeld, cats can be connected to some of history's most notable periods and personalities. Sox the Cat presided over a period of record economic growth as first cat during the Clinton White House, coinciding with the only fiscal surplus on record for the U.S. federal budget since the late 1960s. Larry, the British domestic tabby, has served as chief mauser to the cabinet office at 10 Downing Street for over a decade, outlasting the premiership of four former prime ministers. And then there's Sonny, my cat, who continues to bring me endless joy, a neighborhood stray that I ended up feeding one night, and then he promptly decided to move in thereafter. For there's nothing like a cat to make a hard day more bearable, and conversely, a good day as an opportunity to ruin your leather sofa or eat your house plants. But that's what makes them so remarkable and revered. A complicated creature and companion, sure, but one whose love and bond is as stubborn and unyielding as they are. Okay, okay, I get the point. So here we are, bowing to listener pressure and doing what is asked. And to be fair, cats are pretty fascinating. They've been revered for millennia. And even before they became household pets for the ancient Egyptians, cats had been hanging out with humans as long as 10,000 years ago. 
So, to help us better understand their quirky personalities and evolutionary history, we're joined by Jonathan Lossus, evolutionary biologist at Washington University in St. Louis and the founding director of the Living Earth Collaborative, a biodiversity center and partnership between Washington University, the St. Louis Zoo, and the Missouri Botanical Garden. He's also the author of the new book called The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. Jonathan Lossus, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we've done our program on dogs, and of course, by doing that, we had a lot of hate mail, so we have to now discuss the counterpoint, which is cats. So I'm excited to jump into this with you. And I, just the title alone, the cat's meow, of course, it's, it's a funny phrase that's used culturally in different ways. But in this case, you're literally referring to the noise, the meow that a cat makes. And it might seem like a funny way to start an interview, but it's kind of an interesting um, evolutionary development as to why a cat makes the sound it does, and it's a history lesson along with it. So I'll let you jump in, which is why is it so interesting and important, the, the tone of the cat's voice? Well, so let me tell you how we picked the title for starters. Um, the initial idea was that it, we, we would call it uh, How the Cat Got Its Meow, a, a mm. reference to Rudyard Kipling stories. But then we shortened it to The Cat's Meow because that's a phrase that people... Uh, no, that means something that is good. Um, interestingly, I didn't know this, but in the United Kingdom, the cat's meow has no meaning. And so, in fact, when the book is published there next week, they've got a completely different title because people <laughs> didn't understand what that was about. Uh, but the other reason is because the meow of, of the cat is the cat's, to my mind, it's quintessential feature. When you think of a cat and what they do, they meow. And not only do they meow, but they meow to us. Anyone who has lived with a cat, I think has experienced a cat meowing, trying to tell us something. And what that is, is sometimes clear, it's sometimes not, but they clearly meow to us. I had always assumed that cats meow to each other as well as a way of communicating. And the fact that they were meowing to us just means that they had included us in their, in their social circle. However, it turns out that that's not the case. Scientific research has shown that when you have a group of cats living together, they don't meow to each other very much at all. It's, it's not a way that they communicate with each other. And so that might suggest that cats have evolved to meow specifically to us as part of the domestication process. Um, but it turns out that's not the case because other species of felines, particularly small felines, they all meow. You know, the ocelot, the serval, all the other small species, they all meow. So the domestic cat did not invent the meow, but it turns out it's changed the meow from its ancestor, that scientists uh, recorded meows and compared them. And the African wildcat's meow is, is rated by people who hear it, they're not told what they're listening to, as much more urgent and less pleasant mm. than the domestic cat's meow. The domestic cat's meow is higher pitched and shorter in duration. And one possibility, and this is just a, an idea, is that short, higher pitched sounds are what, what children sound like, essentially. And so the idea is that cats may have taken advantage of our predisposition to find higher pitched sounds pleasing and have evolved changes in their, in, in their meow in order to live with us and to communicate with us. 
It's so interesting. The cat, in a sense, uh, right, might have been acting upon something that we love, something we find in children. But really, it's it's a, it had a way of maybe staying a little bit closer to us. I mean, to me, this sounds like it's a story of domestication to a certain extent. I mean, do you think that's right? Yes, I think it's. I think that's very plausible that as cats started associating with us thousands of years ago. Um, the ones that made sounds that we found more pleasing, they were treated better. Mm -hmm. And so uh, cats that did that, if, if that was a trait based on genetic differences, those cats did better. They got more food and they had more kittens. And so mm -hmm. it, would, it would be an example of, of evolution, just like evolution in the wild as part of the domestication process. Yeah. So this, I think, maybe is a great, a great launching pad for us to move then way back in time, because clearly cats existed before we did, or at least outside of our our sofas and living rooms. And so where do we begin to see, you know, cats show up in, in human literature? I take it it's really far back. Well, it's so, so first we need to, to say that uh, it is clear that the ancestor of the domestic cat is a species called the North African wildcat. And wildcat is actually its name. It's not just a wildcat. It is the name of the species. And uh, the first association from the archaeological record is about 10,000 years ago on, on the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea near Turkey. And it is commonly thought that cats were domesticated somewhere in this region, which is called the Fertile Crescent. This is the area where civilization first began, where, where our ancestors or, or some people gave up their hunter-gatherer ways and settled down and, and built villages and started agriculture. And so the idea is that as people grew crops to eat, um, just like farmers everywhere, they grew as many crops as they could in the good season, and then they stored them in, in, in little shelters you know, to save them for harder, harder times. Well, when you put a whole bunch of food in a place like that, nature abhors a vacuum, and of course, rodents, rats and mice, figured it out and started eating all the grain that was stored there or whatever the crops were, and their population exploded. And then the idea is that some enterprising African wildcats started uh, hanging around or moving in there to eat the rodents, a, a very high concentration of food. And that was the start of domestication. And so the idea is it occurred somewhere in this area, somewhere between Egypt and maybe Iran or, or Turkey, possibly as long ago as 10,000 years ago, certainly by 3,500 years ago, because that's when in Egypt, you see paintings on tomb walls and, uh, and sculptures and so on, clearly indicating a domestic cat. Mm. Cats wearing collars, eating from dishes under the dinner table, going on family outings and so on. So certainly they were domesticated by 3,500 years ago, but we don't know how much further back it began. Mm. What were these cats like? I mean, were they the kind of adorable little house cats we have now, or were they something we'd think of as a little bit more wild or aggressive? Or, you know, do we have any sense of what they looked like? Well, the, the, uh, yes, we do. And uh, the sense we have is from the fact that their ancestor, the African wildcat, uh, is still around today. Hmm. And the African wildcat looks pretty similar to a domestic cat. Uh, oh. I like to say, that if you saw one, you looked out your kitchen window and saw one walking through your backyard, you would not say, what's an African wildcat doing in Los Angeles? 
you would say, what a cool looking cat. I've never seen one quite like that. Yeah. Uh, but they really do look like domestic cats. Their legs are a little longer. They've got cool markings, but but they look pretty similar. And in fact, anatomically, they're barely different at all from domestic cats. Hmm. Um, so these cats would have been very, uh, very familiar to us, but yet they they the African wildcat today, if you came up to one in the wild, it's not going to let you walk up and pet it. It's um, it's going to keep its distance. It's a it's a wild animal. Uh, yeah. But the the idea is that um, if I can just go on a tangent for a moment, scientists have been very in, interested in recent years in what they call the the personality of different species. And, but the the idea that say individual cats or cows or snakes or whatever may have behavioral differences from one individual to the other, just like we do. What what we call temperament or personality, does it exist in animal populations as well? And the answer is, it absolutely does. That, for example, in, say, cats, you might find some that, to anthropomorphize, some are bolder, some are more curious, others are more scaredy cats. And so there are differences. And so we can imagine when when uh, when people started living in the villages, there were some cats that were bold, that they would be willing to walk into the village and they, those are the ones that discovered all the rodents. And so they ate more. So they had more kittens. Presumably those kittens were bolder as well. Mm. And in turn, people may have seen that the cats were useful. They're eating all the rodents. And so they may have done things to encourage the, uh, the cats to be around, maybe put out food, maybe some milk, which isn't actually that good for a cat, or give them other food or give them a warm shelter to sleep in. And again, the the cats who had the personality to be most likely to enter a house uh, would be favored and they would have kittens. And, and through time, the behavior would change. And then they're living in the houses and, well, kittens are adorable. And so maybe people start petting them and the cats that let them pet them would do would be treated even better. And eventually you end up with a domestic cat. Mm. That That's the idea of how it happened. Well, it's interesting that it's not really a much different tale, which is that, you know, these were like lions or tigers that eventually were domesticated over thousands of years, you know, in the sense that we think dogs may have come from wolves or something like that, which, I mean, a wolf is not necessarily that much bigger than, you know, certain breeds of dogs. But but really, I mean, we're talking about there, there was already a, a cat that we might have recognized that came into human populations. And, and it was not, you know, a, a 10 foot tiger or something like that, that slowly, you know, became friendly to humans, right? That's, that's exactly correct. Yes. Yeah. It also, I think, speaks to the fact that there's this incredible variation, though, among the feline population. I mean, I think cat owners look at their cat and say, oh, you're kind of related to a, a tiger or something like that. I mean, can you talk for a second just about the biodiversity within the species? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there are today 42 species of felines. Now, everyone's familiar with the big cats. They're the celebrities, the ones that have the National Geographic Channel, Big Cat Week, and so on lions, tigers, leopards, etc. But there are only about maybe nine species of those. The other 33 species are small cats. And most people are unfamiliar with most of these cats. Um, you know, I ask, I like to ask friends, you know, can you think of a cat smaller than 50 pounds? Mm. And they usually come up with the ocelot and the bobcat, and that might be it. But there's a huge variety of others that no one has ever heard of. The tigrina, the oncilla, the bornean bay cat, the marbled cat, the flat-headed cat, and so on. 
Uh, there are a lot of species in Asia and Africa and South America, a few in North America and, um, and Europe. And so there are lots of different species of cats. And yet at the end of the day, a cat is a cat. You know, they're bigger, they're smaller, their hair looks different, but they're pretty similar. And I've, I've spoken to zookeepers about the behavior of big cats or any wild species of cat. And they say that if you can look at your house cat and figure out what's going on in its mind from its behavior, from its posture, then you can read a tiger. That they're they're very similar in many different aspects of their biology. Hmm. That's interesting. So the idea being that psychologically speaking, they all kind of mirror each other, even if the size of them is completely different. To a large extent. I mean, there certainly are differences. The species do have adaptations to where they live and so on. But to a large extent, there's a lot of similarity. Um, mm -hmm. There is one big difference that actually is relevant to domestic cats that is unusual. And that difference is that most species of most feline species, most cat species are thought of as being loners, that they, they live life on their own, that males, when they mature, they just go off on their own. And yeah. females, similarly, similarly, they're on their own, except when they have cubs, which of course they, they live with. And mm. this same idea is what most people think of as domestic cats, as loners, being aloof and so on. The one big exception of this among wild species is the lion. The lion, as everyone knows, lives in prides. And these prides are very social groupings of, of animals. Now, the, the animals that live in a pride, the core of the pride are related females, that when a female grows up, she stays in her pride. And so the pride members, the females are all related to each other, their sisters or cousins or whatever. The males, when they grow up, they leave the pride and go elsewhere. That's, the, that's how they avoid inbreeding. And the males, the males in a pride similarly have come from elsewhere and are unrelated. Hmm. Uh, and so the, the social behavior of lions is, you know, if you've seen a documentary, everyone must have seen these. They, they lie next to each other. They groom each other. They play with, with each other. In fact, uh, female lionesses will even, will even nurse each other's cubs. Um, so they're extremely socially connected animals, a very, a very strong social life. Hmm. But it really only exists within lion populations. It doesn't, you don't see it within, I don't know, smaller cats or even tigers or something like that. Well, for the most part, you do not see that in any other wild species of cat, tigers, mountain lions, whatever. Now, some of the wild cat species I mentioned are very poorly studied. So who knows what we might discover? But as far as we know, there are no other wild species that have this social behavior. Hmm. And I keep on saying wild species because here's the surprise. It turns out that domestic cats also can be very social. This is what most people don't realize, that in fact, when you have a large number of domestic cats living together in a usually an unknown situation, not in a household, but out, outside, when you have a lot of domestic cats, they live in groups that are very similar to prides. Mm. And these groups, so the, the setting for this is a place where there is a lot of food available and so there are a lot of domestic cats. And that's often a result of places where people feed cats, as happens in LA and everywhere else in, in the country and in the world. People, kind-hearted people are out providing food for unknown cats. And as a result, you can have very large populations. Um, it also occurs on farms, and it occurs in places where there's a lot of uh, scrap scrap food made available. For example, fishing villages, where the, you know, the, the spare parts are thrown into a pile and the cats eat them. 
in those settings, you can have a lot of domestic cats living together. By the way, the domestic cat is the name of the species. That, um, and Anyway, you have a lot of domestic cats living together and they live in groups of related females, just like in lion prides. And so you'll have a bunch of groups living in one place, but within a group, related females live together and they're very social in the same way that lionesses are. They lie next to each other, they groom each other, they're just very friendly. They help raise each other's uh, kittens, they'll even nurse each other's kittens. There are even reports of uh, a female domestic cat serving as midwives, helping another one give birth. And so domestic cats in certain circumstances can be very social animals, just like lions. In mm -hmm. fact, I think a group of cats should be called a pride, uh, but it's, they're not. It's called a clouder, which is an odd term whose uh, derivation is, is not very clear. So mm -hmm. domestic cats in some circum circumstances are just as, as social as lions are. And those are the two exceptions in the, in the cat world. So where do you think this idea of the, the loner cat, the aloof cat then comes from? Is it the fact that kind of we just put them solo in our houses and they kind of avoid us and we think it's funny? I mean, what, why do you think this reputation came to be? Well, I, I think that's part of it. I think the other reason is that a key part of this sociality that I was just describing is that they're friendly to related cats that they've lived with all their lives. And as I mentioned, well, there are a lot of cats, there'll be a colony or a clouder of them, but there will be a number of different groups within that colony. And the cats are not friendly to cats in other groups. It's only they're friendly to their own group. And so the point is that the cat uh, cardinal rule, if you will, is uh, be friendly only to cats that you've known your entire life. And so the point is, if you get a cat and then a year or two later, you get another cat, those cats are not, don't know each other, they're not related, and so their natural tendency is not to be friendly to each other. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can work it out, and sometimes uh, there are ways to get cats to, to become friendly if you handle it just right, but that's not necessarily true. And there are many cases where people have multiple cats that simply don't get along. And so I think that has a lot to do with, uh, with this idea that cats are not social and that they're more loners. Hmm. Interesting. The flip side of this, the advice is if you're going to get a couple of cats, get get litter mates, get ones that are related to each other. They do they do much better overall. Hmm. I'm interested in exploring some of the, the kind of common psychological traits that you see among maybe all cats. I mean, you said that if you can understand what's going inside, you know, your cat's brain at home, you could maybe understand how a lion functions. And I think this is maybe our draw to these creatures is we find them really interesting. So like, how do you describe what a cat is in terms of how it acts and moves throughout the world or amongst themselves? Cats are consummate predators. Uh, there's there's this wildness to them, and they are as good a predator as there is on the planet. And I think one of the appeal to many people of having cats as pets is, is that you've got a little bit of the Serengeti in your own living room. Um, cats are not as domesticated as, for example, dogs or most other domesticated species. And what I mean by that is they are not that much changed from their ancestors. They're, they're very similar to the African wildcat. Whereas most dogs breeds, for example, look nothing like a wolf and behave nothing like a wolf. And so I think part of the appeal to, uh, to having a cat is to have this, this semi-wild beast in your house and just to see it acting in, in natural ways. Hmm. Now, 
On the other hand, cats can be very affectionate. That one of the things that has occurred during domestication is that we have favored cats that relate well to us. And then as well, there are some breeds of cats that have been specifically selected for their friendliness. And so there are certainly some cats that are extremely affectionate. And that, of course, is very rewarding as well. And many people, including me, uh, really like the feeling that with a, a cat, you've earned their affection. Whereas some people might say that dogs are just hardwired to be friendly and you know they'll be friendly to anyone. With a cat, you feel like, wow, I've, I've made it. This cat is, has given me his seal of approval. Hmm. And I think that's an appeal of of cats as well. So it makes me wonder, why has there been such differences in, in breeding or the way that, you know, dogs, we've gone from, let's say, you know, a, a scary wolf to a completely benign golden retriever who will love absolutely anybody. Like, why haven't cats followed a similar trajectory to where they just want to cuddle on our laps and, you know, there's, there's not any hint of violence or predatory behavior? Well, that, that is a great question. And I, I will say there are some cats that really are quite affectionate, as you just described, but certainly others aren't as well. I, I think there's, there's two explanations. One possibility is just it's been a matter of time that dogs have been domesticated for a, a substantially longer period than, than cats have, that huh. es estimates of dog domestication span anywhere from, say, 15 to 30,000 years ago. Wow. Whereas with cats, one possibility is it's only been three or 4,000 years since Egypt. Now, it may be, been longer, that's unclear, but, but dogs have been domesticated longer. And so um, perhaps that has, uh, it's just a matter of time. And I mean, I will say this, breeders can select for very friendly cats. And so given enough time, if people wanted to, they who knows how far this could go in terms of a uh, of, of having very friendly, affectionate cats. Um, but there is the other issue that wolves are social animals. They live in packs and they have a hierarchy where uh, there is what's sometimes called the alpha male and alpha female, although that idea is a little bit falling out of, of favor. But they, they, they innately have this uh, social behavior where they relate to each other in certain ways and particular, particularly the animals tend to follow the, the leader of the pack, if you will. And so there's some reason to believe that during domestication, we have inserted ourselves as the, the top dog. And so mm -hmm. the reason they're so affectionate and, and obedient is that they, they were like that to start with. And cats, for the most part, are not like that. And so it hasn't uh, been as easy to to occur in the, in that way, if that makes sense. Well, it does, and, and to me, it's it's maybe a basic but a really important point that they don't kind of function from a top down hierarchy. Let's say, like a dog does, or some theories put it that way. That you know, you you can't really be the alpha cat in the house, right? Yes, that that's basically. I mean, cats do have hierarchies as well. Some are dominant over others, but it's not like a wolf pack, and mm. it's not the same sort of integrated social structure. It also occurs to me that, I mean, there might be something that we love, though, about the disposition of the, the kind of wild cat. I mean, like, it, it's kind of interesting to have, as you said, a little bit of the Serengeti in the living room, which is that 
there's an unpredictability I find to these creatures uh, that is is kind of amazing, right? Like we're always, I think, maybe trying to figure them out in a way. Could could you speak to that a little bit? I I think that you're absolutely right about that. That dogs wear their hearts on a sleeve. You you mm-hmm. know what they're thinking, and they're they can be so friendly and affectionate. Cats are a little more inscrutable. Um, the more you're around them, the more you can pick up. Their their signals, for example, are more subtle that you really need to pay attention to read them sometimes. And so uh, that makes it that makes it more challenging, but also more rewarding to figure out what it is that you know that is going through their mind, if you will. And so I think that is part of the appeal of cats as well. Is there anything else, though, you could say, too, in terms of why they are the way they are, why we think of them as loof? Why maybe does it have something to do with kind of the predatory instinct? They're always maybe on guard or looking around. I mean, what else is there about the cat that you find kind of psychologically interesting? Well, I, I think that you've put your your finger on a lot of it. Um, one thing that does come to mind, however, is that uh, African wildcats in the wild, they are consummate predators, but they're also prey. Larger predators will happily catch them and kill them and sometimes eat them. And so they have this uh, this lifestyle where they're you know always out on the lookout to eat, but they always have to be very alert for something bigger coming along. Mm-hmm. And at least ancestrally, that's not so much the case with the wolf, that wolves have very few uh, predators that they have to worry about in nature. And so that may play uh, part part of it as well that that you know may shape cats always are they have that in their back of their mind big things perhaps dangerous interesting yeah H- how do you think that reflects in their personality well i think you know, i think that some some cats are called scaredy cats for a reason and i think that may be part of that mm. having said that though i need to point out something important and that that is that cats have a critical period during their development that will determine how sociable they are to people. That from age about four weeks to 10 weeks, it really matters how much they interact with people. That kittens that are handled a lot in a friendly way, and particularly by multiple people, they will grow up to be well-adjusted house pets that often are extremely affectionate and friendly. Conversely, a kitten that never sees a person for its first 10 weeks of life or so is really unlikely to be a very friendly cat. That that's the, the time when their interactions with humans are really set strongly. Now it's not impossible that such a, a a feral cat, if you will, later on could calm down some, but to a large extent, those er, those early experiences really shape how they will interact with people. In fact, it turns out the advice that that experts give is not only is it important to handle your kitten a lot, you know, every day but that multiple people do it because if it's only a single caretaker, the cat may grow up and, and fixate on that single person and not be friendly in general. Or if, if only women, for example, handle the kitten, then they may not be friendly to, to men or to children. Um, mm. So those that uh, phase is critically important. And even the friendliest breed of cat, if you isolated a kitten by itself and didn't let it experience people during that critical phase, they would not be particularly friendly cats. Interesting. So that plays an important role as well. 
Interesting. And this may be unknowable, or maybe you can shed some light on it. But but when I think about how dogs versus cats kind of cognitively develop in terms of how they relate to humans, I mean, you hear of dogs like, you know, some have like 30 tricks they can do on command, and they have really good ability to come when called, at least some of them, right? I mean, they're, they're kind of put to work in a way that I feel that cats are not. Why is it that a cat won't come when you clap your hands or it won't roll over, or, you know, do a somersault? Do we know why that's the case? Uh, do we know why? I'm, I'm not sure we have a particularly good idea other than getting back to the fact that the dogs are more domesticated. Yeah. Um, and so they've had a longer period of time. But I do want to say that it, it is actually a, a widespread myth that you cannot train a cat. In fact, cats are very trainable. And the cats are very food oriented. So using food as a reward, you can train them to do all kinds of things, um, all kinds of tricks. If you've ever seen, uh, there's a, a group called the Savitsky cats that were on America's Got Talent, huh. who train cats to do remarkable things. And uh, just one more thing, you can train cats to, to go to the bathroom on the toilet. Sure. Um, and you're sure, certainly not going to do that with a dog, I don't think. So cats are actually very trainable. You just have to to learn how to do it and and then do it correctly. Well, one thing that I found really interesting when we did a program on dogs, and it was one theory as to why they have been so useful to us and are such an interesting species, is that it appears that the dog is really good at creating like cross-species friendships. So you can put a dog to guard, you know, a, a pack of whatever, you know, bunnies or cows or sheep. And, and the dog, if trained correctly, will learn to coexist and maybe even guard or take care of. Do we have any sense if a cat is also interested in cross-species relationship, will it develop them? Or does it really kind of prefer to kind of hang out with its own kind? Well, it, it certainly can happen. I'm not sure how much people have tried to do that. I mean, you're just not going to get a cat to herd sheep or something like that. <laughs> right. So I, you know, people may not be trying, but cats and dogs, if introduced, uh, introduced correctly can get along very well. And um, there's actually an interesting side note to that is that um, cats and dogs have some behaviors that have opposite meanings uh, to their own species. And the obvious example of that is wagging the tail, hmm. that a dog wagging the tail is a friendly signal, but a cat flicking its tail back and forth is a I'm not very happy and back off or I might scratch you or bite you. Uh, but somehow a dog and cat figure it out. They learn that the, the dog wagging its tail is not a threatening gesture. So anyway, dogs and cats can certainly uh, learn to get along. And there are reports of cats uh, being able to get along with other animals as well. But I, I just don't think people have tried it that much as they have with dogs. And if you're just joining us on Life Examined, my guest this hour is Jonathan Lossus, author of The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. He's an evolutionary biologist at Washington University. We'll be back with part two of our conversation after this short break. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. 
I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. My guest this hour is evolutionary biologist Jonathan Lossus. In his most recent book called The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa, Lossus explores some of the latest scientific investigations on cat behavior. For example, a cat's meow and purr have evolved over time because humans prefer high-pitched sounds that resemble something closer to a human baby. And a cat purrs differently depending on what it needs. Lossus also tackles some widely held myths and addresses concerns among bird conservationists that there are just too many cats killing birds that never adapted to these newly introduced predators. All right, let's dive back in. I'm also interested in just kind of what the cat has come to symbolize, even going back, you know, to to Egyptian times and the fact that, you know, they were entombed in these beautiful cities and there were the sphinxes and that that I think that the cat in some ways kind of occupies this really interesting part of our consciousness or in our art. And have you thought at all about that or as to why I think they play such a large role in, you know, in our history culturally? Let's start with the Egyptians because it's a very interesting story that about, so the Egyptians had all of these different gods and different gods were often portrayed as taking the form of some type of animal. Hmm. And uh, about 3000 years ago, the god, the goddess Bastet became the most important god. And she, her totem animal was the domestic cat. It, it had been, uh, she had been portrayed earlier than that, looking more like a lioness. But about that time, she was portrayed as a domestic cat. And the idea was that she took on the, particularly the virtues that were seen in domestic cats, which were also, which were often uh, traits that we consider to be characteristic of females, being nurturing, being warm and friendly and loving. And that's were, were some of the characteristics of Bastet. And so the cats became revered animals in Egypt, so much so that uh, that people would shave their eyebrows for a month if a cat died, and killing a cat was potentially punishable by death. So cats were very important during that time because of their association with Bastet and the qualities I just mentioned. There is an irony to this, however, and the irony is this, that there would be this big celebration once a year in the city of Bubastis, which was on the Nile River. And it was kind of the, the main city of Egypt at the time. And it was where Bastet was, her goddess powers were, she was based there. Anyway, they would have a celebration for her in Bubastis. And it was from descriptions very much like Mardi Gras. People would come and they would have these wild parties, but they would also go to the temples to uh, to pray and to ask for to make offerings and to ask for gifts from 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 Bastet and so on, and what they would do when they went to the uh, temple is they would bring votive uh, votive offerings, you know, like candles today. But these votive offerings would be little cat mummies, and it turns out these cat mummies had a dead cat inside of them, and that what was happening was that the temples were uh, this is horrible. Uh, put your fingers in the air if you don't want to hear it. They would raise all these kittens and kill them, strangle them, and then wrap them up and turn them into a mummy that you would then buy as you were going to the temple to make as a votive offering. And the temples would be full of thousands of these mummies that they would then take down to the appropriately named catacombs and store them there. And so archaeologists in the last century discovered hundreds of thousands of cat mummies in these in these underground storage places. And so the irony, of course, is that they revered the cat and then they treated them like this. 
Interesting. I mean, are, are there any other moments in history or different cultures or societies that also had such reverence or interest in cats? Or is it, are the Egyptians really alone in that? I think that the Egyptians were the high point in, in cat reverence, yeah. as far as I'm aware. Um, The low point, of course, was during the Middle Ages when cats were massacred by the thousands, especially black cats, but that was generalized to all cats. They were considered to be the the witch's familiar, and sometimes a witch herself transformed into a cat, and they were just slaughtered brutally. Right. I mean, there's another interesting example, right, as the cat taking on some other kind of interesting cultural symbol. Do you know any of the history of that? I'm just kind of curious how suddenly the black cat suddenly is, you know, considered as this like evil symbol. You know, I don't know the specific history. I I think it is known. There was a a papal encyclical, I want to say in the 13th century AD, sometime around there, basically saying that black cats are are bad. They're Mm you know, the, the devil, or I, I'm not getting the details correct, but that just unleashed this uh, brutal killing of all cats. There are some people who claim that this led to the, the Black Plague, that when you got rid of all the cats in parts of Europe, rat populations exploded, and rats were carried the fleas that uh, transmitted the plague. Now, mm. this idea could be true, but I'm not sure it's actually demonstrated scientifically, but it might be true. You talked also a little bit about the idea of feral cats, and I think you'll see them when you go to places. For example, I remember when I was in Rome, I mean, there were just like tons and tons of city blocks of cats. Um, Is this something you'll encounter really all over the world, or is there anything else you would add to that kind of population of cats? Well, there are a huge number of unowned cats around the world. There uh, there are different categories of them. Some people, there are those that are cared for by people, and there are those that are living off in the wild, just they basically reverted to the wildcat way of life. But they are on every continent except Antarctica. And by some estimates, there are 400 million of them around the world. So they are quite abundant in many places. And in fact, at least in some places, they are a big problem. In Australia, and in, on oceanic islands, there is no question that they have caused many species to go extinct and are, are threatening many more. So um, so in some places, for sure, they're a big problem. Well, I wanted to get to this. I mean, there, there's a really big debate among, you know, people in the birding communities or in greater environmental communities that, that you know, these domesticated cats brought to places like the U.S. have really killed large numbers of bird species. And I I wonder how you sit with that debate or how you feel about the idea that some say, hey, these cats should not be outside roaming around trees and killing birds. Can you talk about that a bit? Yes, it's it's a it's sometimes called problems like this are sometimes called wicked problems because uh, there are no good solutions. There's a lot of debate and argument, but there, let, let me start by saying, as I just did, it is very clear that in some parts of the world, cats have been introduced to places where the species there have no experience with an, a predator like a cat, and they just get slaughtered by them. And they've been a big problem. As I said, Australia, Oceanic Islands around the world, Hawaii today in some places. Uh, but uh, the question is, what about here in North America? And there are estimates that that Cats kill billions of birds and, and rodents every year. And there's a lot of argument about you know, how reliable are these estimates, but it's certain they kill a lot of, of animals. Um, the question, though, is 
is this causing uh, populations to, to go extinct here in North America? And there the data are, are not so clear. Um, it just hasn't been studied nearly as much as it has been on oceanic islands and so on. And so we need a lot more research to fully understand the significance of the problem. Uh, I would say there are two main issues. One is that everyone agrees that removing outdoor, that not having cats living outdoors it would be a good thing. It's it's not good for them out there. Even when people take care of them, it's very dangerous. They get diseases. It, uh, coyotes are a huge problem. There are several studies in Los Angeles that show that 20% of coyotes, when you look at what they've eaten, a cat is in their stomach. Hmm. So uh, it's a tough life to be an outdoor cat in LA and many other places. But the question is, how do you get the cats off the landscape? And it's not easy to do. And so that that's one issue. Uh, people should definitely, as much as possible, not let their pet cats outside. But part of the problem, the bigger problem really is the outdoor unowned cats. But the biggest problem, as I see it, is that the two sides of the debate here in the United States, the cat advocates and the bird, the conservationists, they won't talk to each other. They yell at each other. They insult each other. They call each other names. Uh, the conservationists call the cat advocates the equivalent of climate deniers, uh, being unwilling to look at the evidence. On the other hand, the cat advocates say that scientists and conservationists are heartless monsters, and they won't cooperate. And really, the only way we're going to solve this problem is for both sides to come together and find win-win solutions. Mm -hmm. And what those win-win solutions are, at some, in some way, is pretty obvious. Uh, there are some places where you just can't have cats, that when you have endangered species that are vulnerable to cats, for example, the Florida Keys are a good example, you just have to get cats out of those areas. On the other hand, it is not clear that in many places, cats are a, a big problem, that in many places, you know, if cats are eating pigeons and rats, I'm not sure that's a huge problem. And so we need we need both sides to be flexible, and we need a lot more scientific research to tell us where uh, where are the areas that cats are a problem, and where are the areas that we maybe sh should not should not waste our valuable resources on those areas. Yeah, are there any stories that just that you would share about your love of cats, or a cat that you have, or, or just interactions you've had with them, or stories when writing the book? I mean, anything come to mind? Well, uh, they are fascinating animals. And the, the story I will have from one of my own cats, uh, kind of, well, I, I've always been a cat person and I've never really understood what people see in dogs uh, for the reasons that we discussed earlier that it just seems that they've, you, you don't earn their affection. They're so un, unqualifiedly affectionate and they're so obedient and mm. they don't seem to me as smart as cats. There's there's a controversial statement for you. So I've always been a cat person. <laughs> yeah. um, but a few years, we got a new cat. His, his name is Nelson. And it turned out that he did things like uh, you looked at him, you look at him and he starts purring mm. and you come home for the day and he comes running up to you as soon as you enter the door. Or at, we bought him a lot of toys to play with. And shortly after we got him, he started bringing the toys to us, dropping them at, at my feet and looking up to me saying, playtime. And then I would throw the, the toy and he would go sprinting after it and grab it and bring it back. In other mm -hmm. words, he was fetching it. And I didn't train him. He started doing that spontaneously. And I, I thought that was the most amazing thing ever. And I had all these grand visions of, you know, the Nelson YouTube channel and taking him on The Tonight Show and putting him on America's Got Talent and so on. 
because I'd never heard of a cat doing this. Yeah. Uh, but then I looked it up. It turns out that in surveys of, of cat owners, about, about 20% say their cats will bring them toys and, uh, and will fetch if thrown them. So it's actually not that uncommon. In any case, you know, the friendliness, I realized that Nelson is a dog in cat's clothing. And I now get it what people see in dogs. It's heartwarming to have an animal that is unreserved, unreservedly affectionate and does things like that. So I've, I've softened my stance on dogs but I'm still a cat person. <laughs> Interested just in another sound, we started, you know, with the meow. What is happening when a cat purrs? Have we figured that out? Like what, internally, what's going on? Well, that's a, a fascinating question. And there's some real parallels to the, uh, the story about meows that we, we started with. Um, so they, they purr in a number of circumstances, uh, sometimes uh, when they're in pain or upset, but most commonly in what we're most familiar with, familiar with is when they're content, when you have a cat on your lap and you're you're petting the cat and it makes a soothing, lovely sound. And again, we might ask, is this something that the cat evolved during domestication? And again, the answer is no. All small type, all small species of felines purr. Uh, the larger cats do not purr because they have a throat structure that is different. That's how they're able to roar, um, but they're not able to purr. But all mm. small cat species purr. And if you go on the internet, you can Google different species purring, and you'll hear it for yourself. It sounds just the same. Hmm. But there is an interesting thing in that cats have multiple purring sounds. And one is the content sound that um, that we're familiar with when you're stroking your cat. But there's another sound when they when they want something. And that's much more of a chainsaw broom, broom type sound. And if you've had a cat, you've probably experienced you're in the kitchen, you're opening a can of wet food, and the cat is rubbing up against your legs and making this broom, broom, purring sound. Hmm. And it appears to be a sound that's saying, I want something. And there's a researcher, researcher who did a study to, to see if the two sounds really are different and to explore why, why they, how they might be perceived. And so she first went to people and just recorded them stroking the cat and got the, the sound of a typical uh, content cat. But then she uh, found some people who fed the cats first thing in the morning. And that is a really bad idea because you're training your cat to associate you getting up with being fed. And so she told these people, when your alarm goes off in the morning, stay in bed and see what happens. And just as she predicted, within moments, the cat would jump up on the bed, position itself next to the person's ear and let out this brr, brr, very insistent purr. And so they were able to record it. Then she played back those purrs to people who listened to them not knowing what they were, and they consistently rated the what's called the solicitation purr as being much more urgent and demanding and not nearly as pleasant. Um, they then did a, an, so there are these two different purrs. That that was confer, confirmed by this research. But the, she, she then did a, a digital computer analysis of the audio spectro, spectrogram of the purrs, and she was able to isolate which part of the purr was different in the solicitation purr? What, what part of the sound had they altered? And the interesting thing is that she then claimed, well, that altered part, the part that makes it so urgent and demanding, that makes it sound that way to us, has a lot of similarities to the cry of a baby. Mm. And so she said, well, you know, humans are hardwired to, to hear that sound and to respond to it. Uh, could it be that cats had evolved a purr that, that you know, Sounds like a baby crying. 
I thought that was going a little far. I thought that was kind of <laughs> ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But then I listened to the audio files that they the scientists made available. And if you listen to them, you could hear a baby crying in them. I, I actually think it's true. And so this is another way that cats have evolved to take advantage of us or manipulate us or call it what you will. But we have this sensitivity to this particular sound and they have evolved a purr of that sound that when they want attention, when they want something, they make that sound and presumably we hear it and respond to it. My guest has been Jonathan Lossus, evolutionary biologist at Washington University and the author of the new book, The Cat's Meow. Jonathan, thank you so much for for your time and your interest in cats. I I really appreciate it. As a dog owner, I appreciate it, but thank you so much. (laughs) I appreciate you being so open-minded and thanks for the invitation. This has been a lot of fun. All right, that's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks so much for joining us on Life Examine. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you soon. Take care.